To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Uh, I got a brand new podcast for you. So this week I have on Mark Livesay. Uh, Mark is a is an e scouting wizard. Um, he he does a really good job at breaking down units and e scouting, and he does a really good job of being able to describe it and articulate this comprehensive guide to how he breaks things down. Um, he's an absolute elk nut. So a lot of his scouting and a lot of his tactics apply to elk. And of course, I always work in some high country mule deer or mule deer information in the scouting or in the e-scouting. So we just had this great conversation, this back and forth, uh, uh, how we break down a hunt, how we make our hunt plan, uh, our our old school scouting, our new school scouting, our e-scouting. It's, it's just a, an absolute gem of a podcast. Uh, I wrote down a page of notes as we were talking. So get out your pens and your, your pads. There's a bunch of good information out here. And I, I'm really excited to release this to you guys. And I kind of pushed it through so we could get it out to you guys early enough so you could use this information on your hunts this season. So um, I hope you guys get as much out of it as I got out of it. A really fun conversation with Mark. Uh, sponsors for today's show, Onyx. Um, you'll hear Onyx come up in this podcast multiple times. It is such a valuable tool for us hunters, um, for scouting and hunting and, and just being able to, to map everything and plot waypoints. And it's just absolutely changed the game um, as far as, as, as public land hunting. Uh, so they have um, public and private on there so you can really navigate with confidence. They've got uh, aerial imagery, uh, topography, and then they've got a hybrid system of, of both of them that you can put on there. They've got so many great overlays of roadless areas, uh, wildfires. Um, it, it's just uh, there's so in much information on there. Um, you save your maps on there, and you can save them in different detail levels. When you save a map of your hunting area, you don't have to then have cell service to get a GPS ping. So it'll mark you on your GPS even though you don't have um, cell service and, and you can pull up your maps, even though you don't have cell service. Uh, it's just an absolute wonderful tool. I use it all the time. Um, if you guys aren't a member, you got to check it out uh, on X maps. I also want to thank Zamberlin. Uh, Zamberlin just makes the highest quality boots. Um, I've been using their boots for the last couple of years. Uh, this year, I have a couple brand new pairs that I'm really excited to use. So the 320 Trail Light Evo GTX. Um, super ultra light, low cut boot. Um, it's just got the perfect amount of stiffness and flex for me. Um, again, super lightweight, which is a huge check off uh, my checklist. Um, they got Vibram soles, uh, single piece of leather design, waterproof, um, just an absolute awesome boot for Western hunting. So I'm using that. Um, I've also got, you guys know how I like shoes so much. Uh, well, Zamberlin came out with this heavier duty 103 light hiker RR. Um, so I'm going to be using that shoe this year. It's a leather shoe, ultra lightweight. It's a little bit more burly where it's going to last a little bit longer than standard running shoes. Uh, it's also got a Vibram tread on it. Uh, just an awesome shoe they put together, waterproof. And so uh, really excited at what Zamberlin's putting out and really excited to use them for this season. 
And with that, over there at Eastman's, um, yeah, gosh, we got some good stuff in the works. Uh, great podcast coming at you, like today's. I'm so excited to release today's. Uh, Mark is so good at describing how he breaks down these units, and it just reminds me of things that I do in scouting. So great conversation, but we've got some great ones coming up to you guys to, to help get you ready for season and find more success this, this year. So um, really excited about that. Really excited about the articles coming up. Uh, excited for the hunts I've got to film. Um, there's just a lot of cool things going on and a lot of great content coming out of Eastman. So super excited. Um, yeah, I got a podcast coming up with Ike that I've recorded. Um, that's a good one. I've got another one with Dan Picard. Uh, he's quite possibly my favorite guest on the podcast. I really like these conversations with Dan Picard. So we did an elk hunting podcast that is off the hook. Uh, so I think we've got that slated to release here in a couple weeks to you guys. So get it out before September and some good information out there. So some great content coming your way. Uh, thanks for all the support. Um, you know, subscribing to the podcast really helps. Uh, that way you don't uh, miss an episode that comes out. And, um, yeah, it uh, really helps with the weight of the podcast. And then also um, uh, leaving your reviews there on iTunes. That helps as well. Uh, the follow on Instagram and just the support, the support of our community. Um, it's so humbling to know um, that, that all you guys... Um, that you like the information and like the podcast. And I just want to continue to bring you that next level information. So with that, let's get right into it. So an awesome podcast, Mark Livesay. I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. How's it going? Man, it's going really well. Yeah, well, been keeping busy. It's just the summertime hustle, you know, with... Uh, uh, work and getting ready for hunts and things but yeah it's been good looks like you've been adventuring getting ready for another trip up the yellowstone good on you yeah i um i started guiding uh fly fishing trips in there with my llamas last year it's been i don't do too many a year but two or three times i go in there it's pretty fun i like it a lot man good for you like a little side gig you can do with the llamas huh generate a little income and do these like backcountry fly fishing trips yeah, exactly. Yeah. This one's a four-day back end. We're going into the Black Canyon spot. So, yeah, yeah. Those salmon flies are all hatching in there right now, so it should be fun. Oh, man, that's going to be an absolute riot. Yeah, good good for you, man, putting that thing together. So so what is it – what is actual, like – um. Your your business. I know you rent llamas, and then you also do like I was really impressed by all your e scouting information. And there's also a membership there. Like, can you just break it down to me real quick? What you got your hands in, and what we can promote for you? Well, okay. So my real business um, is I own a company called Ultramax Sports, and we're an event production company. We do marathons and triathlons and bike races and all over the country and that's my core business and that's in Missouri. Okay. And then a second part of my business there is I have a company called Ultramax Tees, which is an apparel printing company that I, it goes kind of hand in hand with my event company, obviously, you know, when you do a raise, you get usually get t-shirt or something, you know, keep it in house. That's smart. Yeah. So we do all that ourselves and, so about half of my business is events that I own myself, and the other half is events that are owned by other people that hire us to do different things like 
timing and equipment and shirts and management and whatever, you know. So that's really what pays the, the bills, so to speak. And then uh, three years ago, and so I started hunting years ago, obviously, and I, I was driving from Missouri out west every year for a couple of trips a year. And that's just the way it went. I developed my business. I used to be a tri. I used how I got into it, Brian. I used to be a triathlete. I know it's hard to believe now. I'm kind of kind of out in my old age, but um, I used to be a pretty serious triathlete. I've done eleven Ironmans, um, and so that's how I got in the racing business in the first place. Nice. And then, so I hunted and raced for years and years. And then I retired from racing in 2007. My business was just getting so big on the event side. Well, you know the event business. It's all weekend work. And uh, so we do 200 events a year. So, I mean, I had some weekends with 10, 11 events on them, you know. And it just got so much for me and overwhelming for me. And my wife and I were having trouble, so she – she knew that I was not happy, and she said, you got one year, and we own retail stores on top. We own running stores as well. So she says, you're selling off everything except for the Venn company, and we're moving west so that you can do things you love. And three years ago, she kind of forced me to do it. It's the best thing I ever did. I wish she would have done it five years ago. And uh, so that's how I ended up out in Montana. And then when I got here, you know, I just I love everything elk hunting and just the backcountry. And I'm a I'm an IT computer geek guy background. I'm a database programmer background. Um, and so I just started looking at well, I started years ago, but I just started looking at hunting from a you know pretty digital componentry, and I just spent a lot of time at it and. Before I knew it, I, I, I kind of thought everybody did it this way, and uh, which a lot of people do. I mean, obviously, you and Ryan do at a high level, and but most people don't, Ryan, as you know. And um, so I just started doing you know more of that. But really, my treeline pursuits, I started this little side thing, whatever, treeline pursuits. And that's kind of what I'm doing now out here. But it's a combination of things. I guide some trips to the Yellowstone through a company called Access Wild. They have the outfitter permit. It's my best friend, Bo Beatty, at Wilderness Ridge Trail Llamas. We met through me getting llamas, and we've become really good friends since then. So I started guiding for his business on the side. And then um, I started acquiring llamas, as you know. And so now I'm at the position the last couple of years, I'm renting them out mostly during summer trips and things, Brian, to be honest, I don't rent them very much during hunting season because I'm using them so much. Um, but as I get more llamas, I will start to rent more during hunting season. And so now I'm starting to do some, I'm doing, you know, I've been on several podcasts. I've started to do some different presentation stuff like the Western hunting summit. Um, and I'm thinking about now is this digital scouting thing kind of, become very i've gotten a lot of tension from that i mean i've got so many messages and just doing a couple youtube videos and so i think i'm going to put together an actual educational program like a web like a you know a subscription webinar system for like you know, it's going to be like six or seven episodes and it's going to be like 10 12 hours of training and so i can put it all in one place make it super affordable but 
still recover my cost for doing it and maintaining it, you know? Yeah, what a great idea. Um, good for you. It's so great. Like I had got bits and pieces of your story, but so nice to hear it in its entirety and, and uh, how you kind of made it to Montana and then how you developed treeline pursuits. And um, yeah, it's super interesting stuff. Like I wouldn't mind telling that on the podcast or leaving that in with the background, you know, and then, you know, with your ideas for moving forward to offer like a like a webinar. I think that's just a super idea, man. You know, I mean, Brian, you know, meeting you and lots of guys like Cody and Ryan and all the a lot of guys I've met out here now that have been out here, you guys have no idea. Uh, I mean, you guys are born and raised Montanans. You go out and go to all these places, and these poor guys coming from you, most like most of the people that came to that summit, they're east to west guys, and they just do not have those opportunities. And I think a lot of us now, I call me us now that I've been here for almost four years, but you just take it for granted. And you just, I don't think that most people realize the wealth of knowledge and the background and the historical perspective that people that are from here really have when it comes to getting into the mountains and chasing critters on a big game level. Man, I think you're so spot on. And and you you're right. You almost think your knowledge is common knowledge, like what you've learned. But what's nice is that you're so fresh to it. Just like 3 or 4 years are really moving out here and really diving into it. And so you know, you remember your first learning spots and, and trying it. And I know you were hunting before that and you were an old school guy like me. Like you had to be really good at navigating like off the off maps and distances off roads to access, you know, public in different areas. But, man, I, I just uh, I do think it's it's such a necessary niche in the in the hunting industry right now is just to give guys that information so they can e-scout, so they can make themselves a hunt plan, so that they can they can go out and go have an adventure out west because it is like this common man, blue-collar working man opportunity out there where you don't have to pay $10,000, $20,000. You can budget for the year, save $1,000, and go have the, the most insane adventure out on public land. So I, just, I think it's such a great resource for hunters. I think you're putting out a good service, and I think – because you are so fresh to it and not fresh to hunting and not fresh to Western hunting, but to moving out here, like you've got a really good perspective on what guys need to know from a base level instead of like you say, like uh, like like me, I've been here my whole life. Like I forgot a lot of the base level stuff or it becomes second nature to me. I, I think that's really important. Well, and you know, it's just like anything. I think that, you know, I started, like you said, I mean, I was checking out topographic maps at the at the library, and you know I've been elk hunting. I think I'm not. A, I always I always say third. I think it's right. This I think this is either my thirtieth year or my thirty first year of hunting elk. So I've seen it from the days when Google Earth didn't even exist. I had I believe it or not. I I, I posted a picture one time. I've still got a lot of my old GPS units, but. I've got a GPS unit that's like nine inches long. It's got a big old flip screen. It takes 12 batteries. It'll last about an hour. And that was the first GPS I got back probably in the early, it was probably like around 95-ish, maybe 97-ish. But my, you know, I've been through just this progression in my 53 years of 
on this planet. And uh, I think that over these years, you know, you just evolve and as new tools come out. But now these hunters have such great tools with Onyx and Gaia and even some of these expansive, you know, KML layers for Google Earth and Top Rut and Gohan. You just got so many resources that we never had up until just a few years ago. Yeah, um, right. So, so you're more aware of it not because you're new to it, because 30 years definitely isn't new. You've been hunting elk and coming out here and doing it for a long time. But yeah, you've evolved with the times, and as these new tools came out, you've implemented them in your scouting and in your hunting. And then, you know, like since since moving out here three years ago, but you you just um you have such a way of describing it from a base level and i wonder if that perspective comes because you were coming from the east to the west and you had to do so much e-scouting and so much planning before you got out here um to prepare yourself for those hunts what do you think about that well that's exactly it i think that you know another thing you that people you know that live here like even me last year i hunted well, last year I spent 108 days in a tent, and I hunted the entire month of September except for three days. I hunted the entire month of October except for like maybe four days, and then probably two, two and a half weeks of November, and five different states last year. And I, you know, now I'm just blessed to have that, but when you get seven days, 10 days, like most of those guys that came to that hunting summit, you know, that's what they're getting ready for. They're trying to get ready for their 10 days in the mountains, man. I can't tell you how many hunts I've personally been on or that nothing's really going right until you're four or five days in and you kind of start figuring things out. And then you really got a couple of days of hunting before you start worrying about killing something, not being able to get it out in time to get out. You know how it goes. And, and that's just really the the bottom line is a lot of guys, I think, the limiting thing for a lot of guys coming to elk hunt, not so much money. When I talk to guys, it's not so much money, maybe not as much nowadays as it used to be with the economy like it is. It's pretty good. But it's just where to start, what you know, where to go, how to even approach this thing. And, you know, a lot of these guys just tell me they're just – they find it – it depends on your personality, but they're just not comfortable jumping in the car and just driving out to some mountain range and just doing it. And that's how I did it when I started. I did. I had no clue what I was doing. We, I just decided I wanted to go elk hunting, and I just drove out here and went in the mountains with not much of a plan. And it was great, you know, but I think that that's what – I think if guys had a few – not that I'm trying to get more people out west, but – I have a passion for it because I wish stuff like this would have existed when I was doing it. And, you know, I have a lot of Missouri friends. I'm a big whitetail hunter, obviously, from Missouri. I've killed some really nice, really super whitetails in my in my time. And uh, so I still have a lot of friends back in Missouri. And then now that I'm out here, I usually have two weeks that I have Missouri boys out here hunting with me. And... You know, it just, it floors me every time they come out, just how, even after a couple of years, how little they really actually know. And, uh, so anyway, I, you know, I, I'm doing it cause I, I love it. I have a passion for this whole digit. I just love the technology and there's nothing better, Brian, just, you know, you know, is finding a place 
on Google Earth, really dialing it in, really scouting it out, and then rolling in there and elk being everywhere. It's just great. It's very rewarding. <laughs> oh, it's the dang best. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Um, yeah, you're you're so right. So um, that's really interesting what you were saying is that the biggest hurdle guys have is just like – deciding on a place to hunt or figuring it out or that that getting started like that adventure is out there and and out west we have some of the most amazing adventures that you can go embark on for for very inexpensive like for a high country mule deer for a coos deer for a rocky mountain elk or whatever it is no matter where you live like it's feasible to go out and have a quality experience but guys are just overwhelmed with it with how to pick areas and so you're taking it from a base level and i I guess that's kind of where I want to start is like just e-scouting and just tap into some of your knowledge and have a conversation back and forth about a couple of these things. So like let's start right from there. So a guy wants to do uh, an, an elk hunt out west or wants to do a mule deer hunt out west. Um, like the first thing I always say is for guys to pick a state. Um, like how do you go about it? What's your starting process, Mark? Um. Yeah, you know, picking a state is important. You know, for a lot of guys, I think, unless they really have thought through this, Brian, you know, and really have planned for years for this, they're pretty limited to a few states, obviously. I mean, you're pretty much limited to giving a shot for New Mexico because there's no points. It's just strictly a lottery. You've got Colorado always as, a, as an option. You've got Idaho uh, if you don't wait too long. You've got Montana about 50% of the time nowadays, it looks like, 50 or 60% of the time. Uh, you know, you've got Wyoming every two to three years. I mean, when you're looking at elk. I mean, primarily elk. I'm a big elk hunter. I like, I paid so close attention to your mule deer talk. I'm a, I'm a rookie when it comes to mule deer. Um, I'll get to that later. But so I'm a primary, I'm primarily an elk chaser. I mean, that's where I really just, I love it. And primarily a bow hunter. I do some gun hunting with some friends and take my wife sometimes. And I'll go if the season's open. And um, But for the most part, I really love bow hunting. So anyway, so, you know, when I get started, I kind of – I started out in Colorado um, because it was always easy to get tags. The public land's a lot easier to navigate there. You don't have as many private land issues, but you got a lot of hunters. I mean, it's probably, I don't know what the numbers are. I haven't looked at them recently, but I'd say two to three times the number of hunters we have in Montana for the same amount of public land, virtually 30 million acres. So, you know, if you don't mind dealing with people, working around people, Colorado's a great option. And, you know, they've got tons of elk, obviously. they got more elk than any state, and uh, but they've also got more hunters than any state. So it comes, you know, those two come together. But, you know, I think it's what time you can go. Um, it's if you have a comfortable with a spot or if you have friends that are comfortable with a spot, but you know, most people I tell them, if you're going to, if you're strictly just wanting to hunt elk and you want to have a quality experience, you want to do as cheap as possible for your first time or two, Colorado is a great option for that. I, I usually advise people to really look close to Colorado for that, those reasons. Um, now things are changing. Colorado's raising their fees and over the years and everything's starting to love, you know, equal out. But, um, you know, I, you know, those are the states. I mean, I usually tell everyone, you know, obviously Oregon has some over the counter tags, but there's quite a few hunters in Oregon as well. And it's a long drive from east out there if you're driving. But Idaho, Montana, Colorado, 
Um, I always throw my hat in for New Mexico. I think you're crazy for not applying for New Mexico with the strictly lottery system. My two biggest elk I've ever killed both have come out of New Mexico. Oh, I'm dying uh, to get a tag out of New Mexico. They have not given me an elk tag yet, but um, I'm getting more aggressive. I'm going to end up with one of those. But you made some really good points there, Mark. So, like for an elk hunter, and you're an elk hunter and love hunting elk, elk are a little bit tougher to draw tags for because they're limited and, and they're really sought after. And so you're right. If you want to elk hunt, it's not about saving up 10, 20 years worth of points. Like you go elk hunt. Like go get them where you can get a general season or an easy over-the-counter tag and, and put yourself in a place with good elk population. So I think you're right. Like you go to where you have contacts or like where you know some people, maybe know a hunting area, or maybe it's just a state you like. Like Colorado is a great state, like you say, because they have such high elk populations and they give a bunch of over-the-counter tags and a bunch of different units. And you can go study out and go learn these units and you can go get into elk. Elk are such a um, nomadic animal, you know, they're always moving. And a lot of times it's just finding elks that's the most difficult point. So we're all on different levels, but even me now, I am still yet to draw like a really high quality elk tag in 20 years of applying. And I'd say 15 years of applying in different States and things like the only tags I get are the over the counter, the easy to draw tags, but there's good opportunity out there. And the main thing is just deciding on a state, deciding you're going to go elk hunting, budgeting the money, and then you, you you try to look at it and figure out you know the unit you want to apply in, and and through doing that, like you say, all these tools that are out there nowadays with the the Eastman's MRS, the the other ones you mentioned, like you can go through these units and start to compile information. I keep a file on different states and different units where I write down information or maybe somebody told you it was good in there. Maybe you read in a mag, but I just start taking notes and start narrowing it down. Uh, do you do the same? Start narrowing it down when you're picking your unit. I have a, I have a word document that I have every state on and every species. And I just got notes on units, notes on certain, and it's funny, like Brian, you mentioned that because I mean, that's not technically digital scouting, but if you start to do that over the years, I can't tell you how many times I pull that out and kind of read down through things I've written before that I kind of forgot about. And I'm like, you know, I didn't get to that spot this year, but I'm interested. I heard something new about it. Like, that's exactly what happened this year. So the spot I'm going to hunt this year in Montana, that's exactly how it happened. I've been studying my own stats. I told you in the, in the Western Hunting Summit that we did – I built my own database to evaluate Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. Those are the three states I hunt all the time. So I built my own database to evaluate the harvest and uh, all of the um, statistics that are available. And I've got this one unit that keeps showing up in my formula. And, you know, I scouted it um, digitally. I went into the unit once but didn't only spend a couple of days. We actually called a bull in the first night. Um, but there's a lot of grizzly in there. So one of my, my hunting partners with me was really <laughs> not liking it. So we moved to another spot and I kind of put it on the back burner. Well, then I was picking up hay, believe it or not, for my llamas. And I was talking to this old man and he starts talking about this creek drainage and, and it, it sounded familiar to me. And we got into this conversation and lo and behold, it was just right, right in the area that I, that this area, and so he was just telling me stuff. I, I just couldn't believe the stuff he was telling me. 
So now I'm back on the digital scouting again. I've expanded my 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 search in this area, and then that's one of my one of my hunt areas in my hunt plan this year is that area again. So I'm revisiting it mainly because of my notes and then running into some new information later on, you know, man, I'm the same way. I landed in a really good unit this year that it's just been years of work and research. And you, you can start to compile this information about these States, like from state agencies will give you populations, give you cow to bull ratios. You can look at Boone and Crockett and Pope and young. It'll tell you the counties correlate those counties to the units that you're hunting and so you can see how many big bulls came from that spot in the world you know and then i like to also i like to get on the maps even early when i'm looking for units to see how the mountains lay out and i found this unit this year i mean same deal it's just all my research over the years and a place i wanted to hunt and so um he scouted it and and all the research keeps pointing back to this place as far as um populations and bulls harvested and things of that nature and I start looking at it and it's mountains, which I love and big high peaks. And I'm like, man, place is a pretty good fit. And I went there and it's just the most beautiful elk country. And it's just full of elk. Every feature you look on, there's bulls or there's uh, uh, groups of elk, groups of cows and things. It's summer range now. I'm not really looking for the biggest bull right now when I scout elk. I'm looking for features. I'm looking for like places elk like to hang out, places where they're summering will be different rutting grounds they'll come back to. So I'm looking for those elk, and then I'm also looking for rutting sign, you know, rub trees and things of that nature. But, yeah, I mean, as you start to compile information, you start to narrow it down. So then you find a place that's easy to draw and you put in so now you've drawn that tag like you've drawn this year in montana you know like like uh and and uh i have a montana tag this year and, a, and an idaho tag so now from there i've got my unit and i'm starting to break down my unit like what's the first thing you do when you know you're hunting a spot all right so what once i've determined um kind of the state you know, in my presentation part of it, I talk about state, species, and method. Um, those are the three things. Once you determine, you know, those, those are kind of the basics. But once you figure out, you know, your state, species, method, and you kind of get narrowed down to um, an area or a unit. Like in Montana, we're lucky. We get a general tag. We can hunt a lot of different units. But in some, Colorado's same, um, you know, not a general tag, but they're multi-unit tags. It just kind of depends on your setup, on your tags, but let's just say you you now you've identified your unit. First thing I do is I, I almost always start with National Forest Map, Brian. I, I, I know it's that. kind of old, but it gives me a good perspective. So first thing I do is I, tr I actually trace the unit boundaries on National Forest Map, and I do it using the descriptions in the regs. I, and the reason I don't do it just by looking at an, another map, I do it by the description for one big reason. You know, it talks about the roads and it talks about the ridge lines and it talks about the creek drainages that the boundaries run. And I have found, believe it or not, just the fact of tracing the outer boundaries of a unit, you're learning about that zone and the features just because of the description in the hunting regs on how the unit lays out. So I do that first, and then um, the next thing I do is I, I look at what I call um, identify all the points of pressure, at, you, know, at, you know, pressure points. So what I do then is I circle every trailhead, 
every dead end road um, in the whole unit with a two mile radius circle. So I do, I do it old school, man. I'm telling you, I take a piece of cardboard, I cut a circle as crazy as it sounds to the scale, whatever that national forest map is to a two mile circle. And I circle all those things with a two mile circle. And then I take another uh, cardboard circle, the same format. And I use a one mile, um, scale and I do a one mile around all open roads. So most national forest maps you get nowadays, at least if they've been updated, they have the motor vehicle use maps on them. You got to be careful though. Those are not always absolutely current and they change those things a lot. So I almost always download or try to find the new motor vehicle use map online. I don't rely on Onyx or Gaia or other services necessarily at this point. I like to look at the actual motor vehicle use descriptions or then, you know, in the maps. And then I take a highlighter and I highlight every road that's open to vehicle traffic in the unit. And I put that one mile radius around those roads that are open. And I'm not necessarily saying that I'm trying to get away from the roads, but what I am saying is by just doing that, by just doing trailheads, dead ends and the roads, you're going to start seeing air. It's going to start popping out at you on this map. I mean, you can look at it all day long and not really see these little pockets sometimes. At least I can't. But when I start putting these actual circles and these actual highlights on this map, there's just certain parts of that unit just start jumping out at me. And then the next thing I almost always do is that's when I, that's when I open up Google Earth. And I will do a flyover like you talked about. I, I will fly over using the, you know, the, the perspective view in Google Earth. And I will fly over this unit and just kind of look at it from a bird's eye view. I won't get specific. I'm not necessarily looking for features that might hold elk at this point. I'm just getting a lay of the land like you talked about before. So if you do those three things just to get started, I know it's a little work and it takes a little time, but hey, hunting season's only a couple weeks long. You got all year to do it. Um, I have found those three things as simple and basic as those are. They'll set me up for success before I start doing, before I even start in with the finding elk or any of my digital scouting markups or uh, anything trail analysis, all the other techniques I use. Those three things really set me up to look at a unit and, and I can identify several zones in that unit that I'm interested in based on those pressure points and based on, um, you know, those kinds of things. Man, that is so spot on. That is, um, so much information packed in there, Mark. And that's, um, like you say, it's it's almost old school, um, but it's so necessary. So I do the same thing. The National Forest Map tells you so much. So I'm just going to reiterate and go back over what you said because a lot of it is so important and then ask you some questions about it. But So the big National Forest Map is such a good one to get because you're right. The big National Forest Map will show you a private, public, 
And, and I love what you said, uh, like reading the description of the unit and marking it out, as that's kind of teaching you the unit. And you're drawing the whole border on there. And then, um, you know, this may be before. I also like to have a big topo map. I like to see that overview, like you said. I like to see the layout of the entire unit, not like one little tiny piece of it. I like to see like how the mountains run, north and south or east and west. Where are the basins at? Um, God, it was just so important what you say. So, like, I, I do. I have a national forest map and a topo map, and I transfer all my private public. You know, a lot of times these topo maps that you get don't have the private public on there. I transfer all that. I transfer the border on there. And then, like you say, to mark things out is, is – um, what a great tip, like your cardboard cutout of a two-mile circle at the end of trailheads. Everybody parks their rig and leaves from the end of the trailhead. The other thing that you stated is the end of roads. Everybody drives to the end of the road and hikes everywhere. That's what they do. It's like just a magnet for people. So what you stated is that you mark the ends of all the roads and draw circles around them. Man, it's so important. And the the vehicle user guide to go get the map from the source from the state to figure out where they can ride four-wheelers and where they can ride trucks. You know, like you say, it takes time to do this, but um, just like we were talking earlier, like guys may only have a 10-day hunt or seven days that they're hunting or or even, you know, guys like me and you that are hunting multiple states, we can only dedicate seven to 10 days hunting that state. If you put in the work and do the research to have a good hunt plan coming in, you, you, you're just putting in the work before you get there. And, and it's just going to equal a better understanding of the unit, a better grasp of it, and like a starting place. You're not so lost when you get there. All of a sudden, this big picture with these circles and a mile from each road you're highlighting, marking the open roads. Like you say, you start to see the, the country that's void of pressure or little pockets of country that, that are going to be conducive to you going in there and finding critters. I just I love your approach, how you break it down like that, Mark. There's so many good tips in there. So, so you get that national forest. You've got it all marked up. You haven't started marking feeding features, bedding features. You've just looked at Google Earth. You kind of know how the mountains are. You know where every road is. You almost have the unit memorized. Is that when you start to really break it down and look inside, you know, those little pockets of country that don't have pressure where then you're looking for all the necessary food cover uh, vantage points? Is, is that the way you go about it? Yeah, so, you know, I established those zones of pressure. I call it, you know, that's kind of my term for it. And, you know, Brian, people get all worked up about this all the time. That What I'm saying here is, can you find elk right next to the road? Absolutely. Can you kill elk next to the roads? Absolutely. I'm a lot. Now, you are more extreme even than me. But, you know, I'm 53 years old. I've done a lot of sports in my life. I'm in pretty decent shape, but I'm not in Brian Barney shape. And it's going to be hard for me to get into Brian Barney shape at 53 years old. I know my limitations. That's one reason I have llamas. <laughs> Number two, I don't like, I love to hunt unpressured elk. I just, I love to call them. I like to be in the middle of them. I like to chase them. I don't like to look up and see two dudes working down on an elk I'm working on. I, I just prefer to hunt on more, let's call it less pressured elk. So, when I say I'm looking for these isolated spots, it doesn't – I'm not saying that there's not – you can't car camp and hunt elk. That's not true. You don't have to backpack and, you know, to hunt elk. But it's the way I like to do it. 
And but my digital scouting stuff that we might get into next, the way I approach it, really doesn't have anything to do with remoteness. All of the what I call finding elk features are things that I think you can apply, and I think you'll agree to. It really doesn't necessarily mean or translate to remote backcountry hunting. It could be translated to park camping or truck camping, but. Um, the first thing, so that's what I do to find places that I like to hunt elk in. And to be honest, in higher pressure states, like some of the states we're talking about that are general seasons where there's a lot of tags, I feel like your odds are better. And I think I mentioned this a lot in, at that summit. The way I approach elk hunting, everything I do when I look at elk hunting is based on increasing my odds. And what I mean by that is I want to put as many factors in play as I can to increase my odds. And again, to expand on that a little more, I don't mean I'm only going to a north-facing slope to look for elk. I'm not always going five, six miles deep to hunt elk. But if I can be five or six miles deep and a north face and a creek drainage with no trail in the bottom and the drainage has a wide space at the bottom with some open feeding here, what I'm getting to is I'm stacking as many of these. When I find places that meet multiple criteria, those are my gold zones. Not necessarily have benches on the north face or not necessarily they've got water on the north face. But when I see a lot of these add it up if that makes sense Brian that's what I'm really starting to, when I start getting into the actual digital scouting analysis I'm looking for stacking as many odds in my favor as I possibly can oh that's really interesting I yeah I like your approach and evaluation of it um, like you say you're stacking odds in your favor so are, are there elk close to roads? You betcha. Are there good features close to roads? You betcha. But like when you're getting into that country that's farther away from the pressure, there there's just more odds stacked in your favor that it's going to be good hunting, that you're going to find the elk because they get pressured to that spot, that they are there for a reason. I, I love that approach, and I love how you started to get into all these things that point to a good spot. And once you start, you know, it's not one criteria you're looking for. It's not one bench on a north side. But if there's a bench on a north side and there's a crick in the bottom and there's a feeding feature to the left and it's away from all trails, like you've got a pretty good idea that, well, I'm, I'm probably going to run into some elk in this spot. This this is worth my investigation. This is my A spot or my B spot. And so that's how you're starting to build a hunt plan is just getting these these conditions or the habitat or whatever, the pressure, you're getting all these things, as many of them as you can, in your favor. And then you know it's a high percentage spot that you're going to run into animals because it's never a guarantee that you can look at something on Google Earth and go there and all the elk are going to be there, all the deer are going to be there. It, it just doesn't work that way. You do your best job scouting as you can. And then you got to put your feet down to dirt and go actually see where they live and actually prove it to yourself they're in there. And so you're just trying to get as much of this and is you're in your favor as you can. And then you you can pretty much lay all your money down and go. I think this is going to be a good spot to hunt. I'm going to put my effort into this spot to go check it out. I, I really like that. Well, and, and the, you know that's exactly correct. You know, and I'll add to that. So one of the things that I teach in my or will teach in my program is this hunt plan that, you know, we keep talking about so many guys talk about it, but 
maybe they don't really understand exactly maybe what I'm talking about. When I say a hunt plan, I'm talking about that's the plan that I'm going to use for my, let's call it, let's say we're going on a 10 day hunt. That's my hunt plan is my 10 day hunt. Now, what the critical compartment or critical part of what I think is in, in with my hunt plans is hunt areas. So inside or incorporated into my hunt plan, I always have three and I'm, I'm trying to do five, five separate hunt areas going to my hunt plan. And what I mean by that is an, a hunt area for me is a place that I could do my entire 10 day hunt in. Not, it's not a ridge. It's not a canyon. It's not a north slope. Those are components inside of hunt areas, the way I define it. But a hunt area is an entire researched out spot that I could potentially do my entire 10 day hunt in. So basically there's plan A, B and C, D and E, if you want to look at it that way. So plan A will have camp spots, it'll have trails, it'll have all these hot spots that I want to visit that I think might have elk like we were just talking about. But each hunt area will be developed separately and independently, and they'll have all of the points of interest, all the glassing spots, all of the bedding, the places where I want to spend my time, call from, check on, whatever, you know, I'm going to have it all laid out ahead of time. I have found that when you're on the hunt and you're dehydrated and you're hungry and you're worn out, you just don't make good decisions and you don't remember things very well that you've thought of when you were back at the comfort of your desk. So I write my hunt plans out with all of my hunt areas pretty described. Not every detail, but there's a pretty good description written. And then I have all my points obviously in my tools. I use Gaia. And I use Onyx in the field, both side by side. Um, I have all my stuff in there as well, but I always have my written version. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how far we want to get into this, but I can't tell you how many nights I'm like dejected. It's been three days. We haven't heard a bugle, you know, some situations just not going great. And I'm in my hunt area and I don't, you know, I'm in this one hunt area and I'm like, I'm thinking about moving to area number two, but I'm laying there in my sleeping bag and look, reading through my hunt plan. And I'll notice something like, oh, this, this dream joke, I haven't been over there yet, but I've, I, I really, I got some notes about that. And then I go to bed really energized, ready to get up because I've got a place to go the next morning. I've got a place where I want to go. And I get over there and sure, and lo and behold, there's elk in there. But when you're trying to do this night, you've got your phone up at night, you're trying to figure out where you're going to go the next day, you're trying to put points in, I just don't think you're that productive doing it. Now, that doesn't mean I don't do some things on the fly. Of course we do. But the more advanced planning I can do, the better. I like to hunt off-trail. I spend a lot of time talking about off-trail hunting. So many hunters get just, you know, they just get almost like hypnotized by trails. They walk in the trail, they bugle from the trail, they walk out the trail. Whether it's a heavy use trail, light use trail, it doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but the point is, I try to spend a lot of time off trail. Well, if you're going to do that, 
You have to really have your navigational plan worked out. You know, how far can you be from camp when it gets dark? How can you get back to that trail? Do you got any terrain features? Are you going to be cliffed out? Is there a way, a route that you've got to keep in mind to get back to, you know, your camp or how you're getting? So I like to hunt off trail a lot. That's another reason I love llamas. They're very good off trail. And, but if you're going to be off trail, you know, you, I feel like the better planning you've got, the better off your success will be. Mario, you, you, um, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. I like you, you're talking about the, th- the things that you're discussing with your hunt plan and the feelings you have on the hunt are the feelings we all have. You've just tapped into it and been able to describe it, but that's exactly right. Like having that written hunt plan, having those three, four, five different locations, I've got more locations than I can even get to on a hunt as my hunt plan. And on the hunt, like when you get into an area and you put all that effort in and you don't find elk in there, like you say three days, you're you're dejected. Like your your mood is negative. Like you're not doing your best scouting right then and there and you're not making good decisions. Everything which you stated. But when you have a hunt plan and you've looked into these different areas and, and you have vantage points and you have water and you have ridge lines you want to go walk, all of this, like all of those little micro uh, spots within side of a, a big 10 day hunt or a big area, man, that is so important to have because your, your confidence gets rattled. Either you run into hunting pressure, you don't find animals. It doesn't work out. Like if you have that hunt plan, you just jump down to the next thing and you're right. Sitting in your tent, it energizes you when you look at it and, and you can think, okay, that like that, for instance, that drainage, that you look back at your hunt plan, you're reading it at night, and you go, God, I never went over to that drainage. I thought that looked really good. And, oh, I marked this vantage point and this timber. Like, all of a sudden, you have to be positive in hunting, and all of a sudden, you're like, man, I think there's some elk in there. And so, all of a sudden, you go to bed energized. You're up before light the next day, and you're hiking back into that canyon to go see if there's elk in there. And that time, it worked out for you. It doesn't always work out every time. But if it doesn't work out there, then you're to the next trailhead or the next hunt plan. But always having multiple backup plans and, and things that you can reflect on, like you say, that you're thinking about when your brain's firing at your house, at your desk, in the evening, whatever it is, putting that time scouting, man, does that pay dividends once it comes down the hunt. There's just there's so much important information that you included in there and in making a hunt plan it's so important i just keep i keep the same thing i've got a notebook with each um state i'm gonna hunt each hunt i have going on and i just list down and i do a written hunt plan exactly like you of where i'm gonna hike in where i'm gonna be and of course i leave room I love adapting and evolving on the fly or adapting on the fly, we'll say, adapting to real-life conditions that I'm seeing in there. And then sometimes, you know, I I may adapt even from my hunt plan, but that hunt plan is what got me there and got me started and got me to those vantage points. And just doing that work ahead of time, you almost can't do it in real time. You're just almost lost or can't wrap your brain around it or you're not in the right frame of mind or whatever it is. But doing that ahead of time and then having it written on paper, you just never seem lost on a hunt. You always have a next place to go. Uh, it's just so important, Mark, what you're saying. Well, even to you know, expand on that a little more is having these hunt areas developed. So how many guys do you know or how many times have you been you know, in your past? You like, get invested in a spot. You put all your marbles in. You go in. It just is not what you think. But you don't have a good option. 
I've seen guys, they just continue, they will just stay and stay and burn up all their hunt days on the spot that just is not holding out because they just don't have a good option lined up. They don't really know how they're going to get there. They haven't, well, they haven't downloaded their offline data and their Onyx, all these things. Yes. If you don't, if you don't have it ready, you're going to resist moving and you're just going to waste your days. I go into an area, I don't know what you do, Brian, but I don't give it a lot of time. I'll just be honest with you. I go in there, I especially during during you know the rut season when they're bugling, I'm in there, I'm walking around it and I'm spending a lot of time in the dark listening for elk. I'm in there, I'm looking for sign. If I'm just not getting it, I'm moving to more points of interest. But if I've worked my way through my hunt area, I don't start revisiting it. I'm on the road to plant, to spot number two. Me too. And I just don't – that's just not the way that I like to do it. Now, could elk move into an area? Of course. But I find that during archery season particularly, there's there's obviously pressure archery hunting. But it's just not the kind of pressure like with rifle season. And I just don't think those elk get pushed around as much. They're, the rut is so overpowering for them. And if they can find an area that they can really be somewhat – you know, away from pressure. They're just going to, they're just going to do their running act. They're just going to stay put. And, um, it doesn't mean they don't move around quite a bit. I'm just saying that in a geographical area. So I want to stay on the move and be flexible enough so I can get to those areas. And, um, you know, I hear a lot of guys, well, they're just not bugling. No, (laughs) they're not. They are bugling. They're just not there. You can't hear them bugling where they're bugling from. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. They just get invested. So many guys, and I'm not being critical of it, they just get invested in a spot. And I'll add one more thing. If you do, it's surprised me so many times when I've worked on a hunt plan and I've got four areas, you know, four hunt areas that I've got in my arsenal, that my number four spot, by the time I'm done, I'm so energized. by My number four becomes my number one. Because as you work through it, you'll just start – the more you look at it, the more you spend time with it, you're – I don't get invested in number one, two, three, and four right off the bat. I evaluate all four of them as objectively as I can. I try not to – well, this is my number one spot. This is my number two. I try – I know it's hard mentally, but I try not to – when I'm doing all my digital scouting work, I'm trying not to pre-label my hunt areas. I let it develop. As I work through all my process of finding out, I've got about 10 steps I, I look at. But when I look at all the features, it's it continually surprises me how I originally thought this area was my number one. But then I'm like, oh, no, this spot is really – this is the spot. And then I'll rearrange those hunt areas You know, when I get closer to being completed. It surprised me how many times. But if you don't spend the time to develop three or four hunt areas, you're never going to experience that. You're just going to keep looking at the same spot and keep motivating yourself on that one spot without anything to compare it to, if that makes sense. Uh, That makes complete sense, and I think that's a mistake that I make. I start favoring spots. And so just like what you're saying, when you start favoring spots, you almost start putting more weight into those spots, and you're not developing – 
your your third choice or your fourth choice because you you know you're not even sure if you're going to get there you're so confident that your first spot or your second spot so i i think i need to be better at that personally like not being objective when i'm looking at 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 hunt areas um and try to develop them each their own and let the best one point itself out to me instead of me choosing my best one before i do all the research i i think that's really smart you said another good thing um on elk and deer you know elk and deer migrate and they show up in places but i have never done good waiting on animals to show up i have done it nearly my entire life at different points whether it's you know when i used to hunt rifle season waiting for migrating elk to show up or the rut or sometimes it's an area that's been good before and i just think these elk are going to come in here again they're just late getting in here I never do good waiting on elk. I got to go find them. I got to go search country. I got to go look for them. Elk are where they're at, and I want to see them in their feature. And even after a big snow or something pushes them around, I still got to go find them. I got to go find where the elk are. Like, I, I never do good on waiting them, but waiting on them. Um, but you touched on both of those points. I think they were both really important. Well, it's just hunting style, too. You have to, you know. I think all of the way that I, the way I approach digital scouting works for all, you know, all styles. But, you know, I know guys that will walk out to the same glassing spot every single day on a 10 day hunt, 10 day rifle hunt, looking for the elk to show up and they'll go home without seeing a single elk. And, but that's just, that's the way they've always done it year after year, same spot. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, 50% of the time, elk will be maybe in there and they'll, they'll do just fine. So another thing for me I might add is when you do your hunt areas, when you're preparing these four or five hunt areas, you know, Brian, we talked a little about it, but I don't know if the listeners may be really grasping it, but you're doing a lot of future work when you're doing it. I mean, guys, seriously, you develop four areas, you end up hunting the first area and you kill a bull. Great. Well, you've got four spots for future. It's not going to waste. You've got all this great research that's available for a future hunt. Um, for me, and this is probably one of the reasons that when I don't kill an elk, this is the number one reason. Like last year, just a quick story, we went into this spot. I knew there's a lot of elk in there from the year before, and we were in there 16 days. And we called 18 bulls into under 30 yards. Wow. And in 16 days. And none of them were big. They were all threes, fours, maybe a few fives, maybe a super small six, one of them. And a lot of them were coming in silent. A lot of them were coming in, you know, with pairs because they're all satellite bulls that were around. There must have been some herd elk around somewhere, but we, they just were not in this area. And all my, you know, my friends are like, well, we're going to go back. I'm like, no, 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 we're not going back. And it's not because there's not elk there. It's just, I, Brian, I am an adventurer by spirit. One of the reasons I think, I, I think that I'm pretty good with digital scouting and I think I'm pretty decent with this kind of evaluation is because I'm in a new spot almost every year and not only every year, but multiple areas in the same state every year. So I move around a lot. I love exploring new places. And I I know that a lot of guys love to go to elk camp and they love to go the same spot they've been going for 20 years. And they just really know the area and they know where the elk are. 
And uh, if they're there, they know how to find them. And I, I think there's a, a real value to that. But I, man, I'm like moving to Montana. Bro. I'm like a kid in the candy store. There's 30 million acres here. I can't get tied down to one spot. <laughs> and I'm just, and that's one thing. I, the way I do it, I have to spend a lot of time on my computer really researching all these varieties of areas that I'm going to go to and how I'm going to approach them. So that's another reason. You know, that's not everybody's style. That's just my style. Well, um, also like like learning new areas, finding elk in different habitat, like finding elk in different locations, learning how they move through country. Like every spot you're learning, you're learning from scratch, and that's how you've been able to build this this process that you have of learning a new area, which gives you confidence to go travel to new areas and look. And I'm like you, I am constantly exploring. I love to explore and I'm always looking for the next hotspot. I'm always looking for where the, those big bulls are coming from and people don't know they're there and locations where they get pressure. I just, I love the whole process of learning a new place, but I think it's, you know, being able to, to learn a new place like that, when you just hunt one place, like it almost feels like you get stuck in a rut. Like that's your only option. And when you hunt one place, like everything changes too. Like the, the elk hunting, I have hunted some phenomenal places in my years of elk hunting, but everything tends to change a little bit. You know, it, the elk start, you know, hanging out in a different part or a different part of the unit, or there isn't as many of them as the first time I found it. So I am on the constant search for just these new areas and these new places. And just like you said, it's like uh, it makes my soul happy to go see new country. Like maybe a little hippy dippy, but I think like every place you go, like in life, you're just a, a sum amount of the experiences you've had. And there's some feeling I get from finding new places and then finding elk in those places or game animals in those places and having it come together and learning it fresh like that is so exciting to me, and it's what I love about hunting. So I, I kind of mix some old spots with the new and old units with the new, and even when I'm going back to an old spot, I'm not hunting it just the way I used to. Like I'm going there with new information and new drainages I want to go to or a new vantage point or a new basin I want to get. Like I'm always exploring, but I, I think that's what helps build our skill set and gives us the confidence to be able to go to – other states and other units and go explore and find this really good elk hunting that's out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, like my hunt plan last year, um, for Montana archery for the first two weeks of archery, I, you know, I had five spots that I was super interested in. I ended up having my prime spot and I ended up going in there and that was the spot I just told you, we called in literally just a bucket full of bulls. They just were not very big. And then, you know, and I'm not a trophy hunter. I'm not a, you know, but I, I have, I will admit since I've been in Montana and I have all this time and I'm, a, and I can get out there more than I've ever been able to do in my, all my years of elk hunting. I am looking for a bigger bull right now. I mean, it's just a personal, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your, what your goals are. That's just mine right now. After 30 years, I've never killed a bull over 350 and, um, I feel kind of like an outsider that I haven't been able to do it yet, but um, I want a 350 bull, and so I'm paying. I'm I'm willing to pay the dues and pass up and, and suffer the consequences of not as much elk meat, and that's why I hunt multiple states. <laughs> <laughs> but 
So I'm on the hunt with, for a 350 with my bow, with my bow. So uh, I've been close a few times, and I've had him right in my lap, you know, and something always seems to happen with those big guys. But, um, you know, so my point was my hunt plan last year was my prime spot. We went in. It was great. Well, this year I'm going to my number three spot from last year. This is the one I told you that I found out some more information from a third party. So then I got back in, refreshed my digital scouting, looked at it from a whole new perspective. And now I've got this whole different way of going. I got a different way of going in. I've got a different way of approaching it. I'm actually hunting a little bit more on the South slope because there's some mixed in North face in the South. Um, so anyway, I, I just, it just re-energized that spot. But I've already done a lot of the groundwork from last year. So I'm just reusing some of the same hunt areas. So it's not, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the, all this work you're putting in, well, one, and this is fun stuff. I mean, if you're an elk hunter, you just geek out on this kind of stuff anyway. Number two, all the work you do is going to pay off if you're going to hunt elk in the future and you're going to be back in these areas again. All these, All this stuff pays off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, it pays off, like you say, um, years in the future. It's never wasted time. And if you, you kill a bull in your first spot on your second day and he's the bull you want, like you accomplish your goal, but not all that work goes to waste. Like you say, it's still there for, for years in the future to go check out and investigate and look at. So, I mean, I'm, I'm with you, you know, I'm, I, I go back, um, I love going back to muley spots, you know, uh, headed back to, to Wyoming. This is a, uh, I've hunted Wyoming in multiple different units, but, but this unit I've only hunted once. And, but I had, I've got like 10 scouting days in there. And this, this place is heaven on earth for high country mule deer. There is so many basins that hold bucks and next level bucks, like all those big bucks, you know, like Popeye and like a uh, Goliath. And those bucks came from this country. Those genetics are in there and, and they're all grass top. And there's all these basins in there, but man, I'm just in love with that place. And you're right. I am going back to my hunt plan and it's been, uh, let's see, I hunted it 2016. So I'm going back to my hunt plan and refreshing everything, looking at it with a new perspective. I killed a buck in there 2016. So, you know, I've got all this time scouting and hunting in that place, but all of a sudden, you know, this year I'm looking at it. I've got another area on the, on the docket. So, you know, I've got to make a scouting trip in there. I've done all my e-scouting in there. You know, I've got a hunt plan for that place, and now I'm going to go into that place. But I'm relying on a lot of old notes and old research I've done in these places and experience in those places too. But it, it does give you like a fresh perspective when you go back to it because that was 2016. I have three more years of knowledge. I have, uh, you know, the experience I had that season. So it's so fun to go back and revisit your old notes, old research and add to them and, and kind of get reinvigorated to go back into some of those areas. Yeah. Oh. oh, did I lose you, Mark? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's... Disturbing what you just was talking. I was like, man, that's you know, it's good stuff. You know, it's just, um, you know, I I feel like when you're when you're kind of doing this whole hunt plan, hunt area, this whole concept of digitally looking for, you know, I love putting boots on the ground, but like you talked about, I don't, I honestly have done less boots on the ground since I've. I just, in Montana, I go out and do some scouting a little, obviously, and I'm looking for certain things, but 
I'm not necessarily looking for elk uh, in the summertime. Uh, now, if I can find a bunch of cows and I can kind of find, but even the cows would move as the food dries up and in the high country and they start moving down as the food dries. You know, that's a lot of things. You know, in Montana, we're kind of the semi-arid, you know, and everybody wants to hunt high for elk. And I went into this spot last year, no, a year before last, super high spot. I scouted it out. It was just grass, was waist deep, green as a gourd, cow elk, every, elk everywhere. Well, by the time September 15th rolled around, we hiked in there and it was dry. It was like dried up hay grass. And just the moisture content had dropped through the summer. The grasses started drying up. The water sources, the snow had melted. The water sources were a little sparser. And we didn't start finding elk until we were about, oh, I would say 1,000 to 1,500 feet down from that. And then you get down, you know, in elevation where there's a little more water and the grass is green again, and that's where the elk were. And so you can't always base it on boots on the ground scouting. And when I am in there, I'm looking for old trails and I'm looking for cow elk particularly. And what I'm really looking for is like you mentioned earlier, I think is a real tip. I'm looking for rub lines. I'm looking for big elk rubs. I'm looking for even old wallows because those are signs of where they do their rutting. And a lot of times they will revisit those spots, as you know. And so that's what I'm basing a lot of my if you're going to do quote boots on the ground scouting, that's really what I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, you're so right. Like scouting elk is so much more difficult than scouting high country mule deer. Cause high country mule deer, where you find them right now is where they're at during season in the same, you know, Alpine environment, same places, same basin, same drainages. So it's just different. You're right. Scouting elk has always been tricky for me, and you're almost just going to get familiar with the country, familiar with the vantage points, and even if you don't see elk, um, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be there because you're right. They have their summering grounds, which they summer and spend all summer in, and then they go to their rutting grounds, and sometimes their summer grounds and rutting grounds can overlap, and that's where the cows end up you know, at the beginning of the rut or whatever the case, or sometimes – there's even bulls that'll go back to that summer ground and have a group of cows there or whatever. But you're right in that where you find elk in the summertime isn't where you always find elk in the in the rutting grounds or in September. And definitely like the bulls are hanging in bachelor groups right now. So you can't even find a specific bull and think you're going to hunt him during season. He's going to be in a totally different place. He's going to move from his summering grounds to go find cow elk to go rut. And so like scouting elk boots to ground is a lot tougher but there's nothing like actually seeing the country with your own two eyes like this e-scouting too the country always looks smaller than you think and you think you're going to cover way more country than you ever can when you get there it's always different and so like to 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 put boots to ground for me it's almost important just to do a couple days in a new area just to give myself the confidence of of knowing what it looks like, where I'm going to park my truck, where I'm going to hike into and, and, and put my eyes in the real country to know that I can cover that distance. So you're, you're right that elk hunting is – or elk scouting is a, a lot tougher to, to find where the animals are at. And just like you said, the wallows is a great place. The rubs is a great place. You just want to make sure that they're not shed rubs and that they're rut rubs. And so um, – 
They can be a little tough to tell the difference between, but shed rubs are when the bulls will rub their horns when they're looking to shed their antlers, and they're usually way lower like in the winter range grounds, um, but they look the same as like rutting rutting rubs, you know, and so you want to be careful of that. But finding those rubs, finding those trails, which you mentioned, that are just beat down elk trails that are going from meadows to wallows and things, finding the scrapes, I always think finding the cow elk is a good thing, but... You don't necessarily need to see cow elk there to have it be good hunting. It's it's always a – like I like to get a good feel for the population of elk in that country. And when I'm seeing a bunch of different groups of cows, it's like, okay, I'm seeing hundreds of cows in this unit. Like they're going to be around and it's going to be good hunting in here. Like this gives me confidence, but you don't necessarily have to find the elk to find, to scout a good elk hunting area. Um, wouldn't you agree, agree? It's just like a, a dicey – deal scouting elk isn't it yeah i mean i you know now that i live in montana i've gotten to do some more boots on the ground but obviously from missouri that's just not an option and uh, so that's probably why i've relied so much on digital and still do digital i you know i'm just a firm believer that if you spend the same to drive three hours to scout a spot and pack in spend a day packing in and then maybe the weekend scouting and being back to work on, you know, Monday, let's say that's what you had. You only had a couple of days. You're going to spend three or four days for maybe an actual day and a half of actually looking for elk. Um, I, you know, I know this is going to ruffle some feathers. I personally think in a lot of cases, now there's nothing. I mean, it's amazing to put eyes on the territory, like you said, but if you would take that same amount of time and you just dive into some of the techniques and stuff and and all the using all the tools, Google Earth to guide RNX and just and just really making it a science and studying it for that same amount of time, I think again, you know, I talk about odds. I think your odds are better doing it digitally than it is boots on the ground in that scenario. Now, if you can do both, that's gold. And I talk a lot about at the summit expectations. You know, when you get into digital scouting, before you can even get started in digital scouting, at least in my opinion, you know, Brian, you said it, you made me think about it, was you have to understand your limitations. You absolutely have to come to grips with it, and you can't exaggerate. If you're a five-mile-in hunter, on a 4,000 foot incline, that's what you are. You're not a 10 mile hunter and you don't, don't scout and don't look at places that are 10 miles deep. You're wasting your time. Concentrate on what you can get to, what you can physically hunt and you'll find out there's elk there. And, um, you don't, you know, if you're Brian Barney and you can do 10 miles with a backpack and still get an elk out, that's another story, but that's not everybody. And so, you know, I think that a lot of guys run into a lot of trouble when it comes to digital scouting, Brian, because they're like, oh, this spot looks good, this spot, without really thinking of really analyzing it, what the elevation is to get there, what the how good the trails are to get there, um, how much cross country they're going to have to do, and the temperature and the weather, if they do kills, all these factors. And then you've got the sheer factor of what I like to call hunt fatigue, Every day that you're in the back of your hunting, getting up early, going to bed late, eating low, you know less calories than you're consuming, after several days of that, 
your hunt reach, so to speak, starts to dwindle. You can't get as far as you used to be, and you can't. And and people, if the best hunters I know face reality in that in that realm, they understand where they can go, and they develop their hunt around that. If it's a car-based camp, then you develop it around that. Um, but there's not a much sense with you know if you have. 50 points in your on axe and you can only reach 20 of them you've wasted you've pretty much wasted your time with the other 20 oh you make such a good point there um everybody's an individual and you have to cater your hunt plan to to what you can do and 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 where you can get to and what you can focus on i think that's such a good point and i love like how much you believe in that e-scouting that i love what you stated at the the first the first part of that comment where you said that you put that same time into e-scouting as you put boots to the ground you're going to learn just as much or more and Man, I, I, I just think you're right. When you can dive into the scouting like that and really break down that unit and really figure out where you want to go and have a solid hunt plan, it's almost like you know that place by heart. You know all the places you want to hit before you ever show up. Um, it, it's just so important. And I, I love mixing the two, and I, I love a little boots to ground. But, you know, too, just like you're stating, like we're all limited with time, and we've got so many hunting days. Like, and in the summer, you know, I'm trying to get my house chores done. I'm trying to make money at construction. I'm trying to spend quality time with my family and my daughters and my wife. Like, I can't be gone every weekend or every week all of scouting season and then all of hunting season. Like, I've almost got to save my days for hunting. And so, like, I can sneak out here or there, and I can go do a scout, or maybe a weekend I got them gone, or I, I love to be in the woods, I love to get these scouting missions in, but I'm just trying to balance so much that I can't put my emphasis on my scouting days, I gotta put my emphasis on my hunting days, I've gotta get stuff done and then go hunt, but I can put in that time on e-scouting, building that hunt plan and understanding that unit, and just be money ahead, so when I have my 10 days to hunt, like, like I, I've got it all nailed down exactly where I'm gonna go and what I'm gonna hit and what I'm gonna do. I just think that's so important coming into season when you're not flying by the seat of your pants. So many great points there, Mark. You're just a, a wealth of knowledge. You've really broke down this e-scouting and have such a good understanding and grasp of it and can explain it so well to guys. Well, I think that, you know, I don't know, you know, kind of, you know, I don't always know the best formula, you know, for all of this stuff. I, you know, I just know that I stick to a very common theme and I know I say it a lot. I sound like a broken record, but stacking these odds um, is just, you know, a really important aspect of the, the approach that I take. But I will say boots on the ground, one more thing. And I, I don't mean to bash this. I, there's nothing better than being out in the backcountry. If you've got the time to do it and you can get them by all means, but the realities of boots on the ground is even if you go in there, Brian, now not, not necessarily you, so to speak, but an average guy, you're going to scout in there. How much ground can you cover in a day or a day and a half on a week? I mean, really? I mean, you know, and especially let's say you go in in July and you're getting up on a glassing spot and you're glassing all these. You know, like, let's just take, for example, Brian, we hiked up to this saddle for this hunting summit. And we all were up there glassing, and there's some beautiful looking country and all these pocket meadows all on this slope. Now that was a, we were predominantly looking at a south facing slope, but let's just say we were looking at this slope, and we were there for two days, and we saw 
a handful of, of elk. I wouldn't say an overwhelming amount of elk. Would you agree with that? Yep, I agree. But that doesn't mean there's not an overwhelming amount of elk in there. We just didn't see them. They weren't coming out in the open. One of the things I noticed, this is a little, you know, just one more tip. We were sitting on that saddle looking over there. I was noticing one of the first things that jumped out at me was the amount of beetle kill was over there. I could see the brown trees, and it wasn't a burn because it wasn't all brown. I could see the pocket browns, which – I mean, I don't know for sure because we didn't walk over there, but I'm guessing, I'm sure you've been around there. Maybe you could confirm it, but I do believe there was a quite a bit of beetle kill on that zone over there. Well, I know that on hot summer days and warm days, those elk, there's so much feed in that beetle kill that they, they don't even have to venture out into the meadows um, because there's enough sunlight getting through those the, that thermal canopy that those elk won't even have to get out of those areas. So, you know, just investing yourselves and looking at a meadow and then making a determination that, wow, there's just no elk in the area. I'm not so sure I subscribe to that that theory necessarily. But, um, you know, beetle kills, one of my, I love hunting beetle kills. Um, and I think the elk feel protected in them. And I think that they can get some thermal protection, but the feed in there can be incredible in some cases. So that was just my two cents on the spot we were looking at just from a, you know, never being there before, just first glance over there. I, you know, I just, now the bears were out everywhere, but, uh, the elk though, I'm not so sure they weren't keeping a little lower profile there in that particular spot. Yeah, you're so right. So I've elk hunted that country for so many years. So that's just, um, you know, that's just proof. Like you go in to go put boots on the ground. We grabbed a really good vantage point. We looked over a lot of good elk meadows. I saw a couple herds, some singles, some other ones here and there. We saw some elk for sure, um, but nowhere near the elk that reside in that mountain range in those drainages. So I'm not sure where exactly they're at. Like you say, there's definitely some hidden in that beetle kill and in that timber that's all green right now. They don't have to come out. They don't have to come out, you know, into that meadow grass right now. And I also think that, um, you know, one of the big facers that we were looking at was more rough and rugged. I think that's almost a place the elk get pressured to after hunting season starts more so than um, summer there for the whole summer and eat the, the meadow grass. So like there's a few things going on there, but you're right. If we were basing hunting that place all on this scouting mission and looking at all that country, you'd go, gosh, there really isn't too many elk in there. And I really didn't see too many bulls. Um, even the trails that we hiked and we went, I didn't see many elk tracks. There wasn't many elk rubs, but I know from experience that country is full of elk. So you're right. Scouting that those elk in real time with boots on the ground, isn't always giving you the best information either. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it definitely gave us some good vantage points. It gave us a familiarity with that country. It it made us comfortable where you could go back and hunt that vantage point and look at those features and look for elk again. So, I mean, you always gain things from it, but you're right. Our time is so precious nowadays, and if you can do the work ahead of time with your e-scouting, like – you're going to scout a place you're going to hunt in September and you're looking at it in July. Like a lot of things are going to change from then till September. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't get the best information scouting elk where e-scouting and the tools that you use and the approach that you have, it's going to point to the, to the best spots. Is everyone going to pan out every time? No, but uh, eventually the odds are in your favor in enough places that you're going to find some pretty good elk hunting come September. 
Well, and I think that, you know, this is a new phenomenon, Brian. I mean, you've been hunting out for lots of years, and I'm sure you will agree. We're in a new era of elk hunting where we've just got these tools. Uh, I think I was mentioning to you, um, I don't know if I mentioned it to you personally, but I've, you know, I spent a lot of time on Google Earth and all these tools, but we've got all these amazing tools available to us now. You know, you've got, you know, the typical Gaia, you've got Onyx, you've got, I mentioned that toprut.com, a really fantastic site for getting KML and they're free. You don't even have to be a member to get the KML files. To get these unit specific KML files for Google Earth, they have topograph, they have fires, they have all the motor vehicle use maps, they have all the topo map names, they have all the recreational features, all built into one KML file that you can download, open it up in Google Earth, and bam, you can turn on whatever layers you want. I love the way they package those all together. Um, I, I get no benefit from Top Rod. I pay my membership um, just like everybody else. But you don't have to be a member to use the KML files. You only have to subscribe to be a member if you're going to look at like the harvest data and stuff, which I do think is fantastic. But um, And then I also use GoHunt.com obviously for that too. But the, the one of the keys I will mention about like you've got to be multidimensional with your digital scouting, I feel. I don't feel like there's one end-all tool. What I mean is Google Earth is not the ticket for everything. They don't have every – it does not have everything you need. It doesn't have um, the different layers that you're going to want. It's not – especially in the field. And then obviously it doesn't work in the field. But what Google Earth does have is that tilt feature and being able to look from perspective from glassing points, and it's got the maximum zoom. I've looked at just recently, I was scouting some spots, and I found a couple of, of really recent aerial photos. You know, you can look and see what the dates are. And they were really recent, and God, the quality was unbelievable. I couldn't believe the resolution on these new images. And so, you know, Google Earth, as they take more photos and they get access to this data, it just gets better and better and better. Um, you know, but you have to use, you have to be good. And if you're going to do it at a high level, you have to learn how to adapt and use Google Earth and the different KML files to accomplish your task. You have to be able to be proficient maybe at OnX because they've got the best private land um, layers there there is, and then I like Gaia because it's got real USGS vector topographic map. You can look at the actual topographic view layer, which I love topographic maps. The raw um, topographic map layers. Well, Onyx doesn't have that. They have a hybrid version of Topo. It's kind of a they've got Topo, but it's not it's not the pure USGS version. So my point I'm making is I'm not picking one over the other, but I'm using them all three and becoming, quote, a master at those three. And that takes a little time, I realize, but that's all things that are going to stack the odds in your favor. Yeah, I think you're right. Like being able to use um, all the different tools available and get good at them because you're right. Like um, Onyx, I, you know, and – and I love Onyx. I use it all the time. I love how you can save and catch your maps. I love they have so many good overlays. There's so many great tools you can use. And I love that you can go 
from topo to aerial imagery to aerial imagery with topo. So they've got so many great things there. But you're right. Then you go to Google Earth and all of a sudden you can switch the image. And so you were talking about dates and the newer dates and the high resolution. Like me, I like I like looking back through old dates and even though the resolution isn't as high, it shows me like where the feeding features are. I can tell what the difference between rock and meadow grass. I can tell where they're really super lush. The other thing I can tell, and you got to be careful, you know, with with mule deer, but I can see trails in the high country. I can zoom in and see backcountry trails that they're using at twelve thousand feet. Well, that gives me a pretty good idea that those bucks have been using that for you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years in those trails in that backcountry, and so. Yeah, I've always I've got a pretty good idea that that's where muley bucks like. And so, you know, using all these tools and getting really good at all these tools and then also, you know, using a, a bunch of different sources to get your information, like using the state agencies, their their information that they'll give you. And some of these state game agencies will give you uh, uh, so much information about the units you want to hunt, populations and um they're trying to help you to have a positive experience. So using them, using uh, like you say the the other programs are, that are out there, the the Eastman's MRS. I've learned so much through that over the years. Just learning good units and and uh, a place like it describes the hunt and the ruggedness and the amount of public private. It shows success. Like you just compile all this information into your file, and then you start to come up with where you want to hunt and uh, it's I do think it is using all these sources. I think that's important what you're saying. And then you compile all the information and, and, and then go to the spots that you like. And that's how you that's how you find the the next hot spot. I think. Well, and you know we haven't really got much into it today. Maybe we can do it on a future podcast. But once you do all this, we've talked about today. You've done your core. You've found your areas. You started looking at it. Then you know really what you got to start looking for is. The features, you like to call them features, those features that hold out, you know, evaluating kind of just give you a summary of what I what I talk about. The first one I always look at, I think I mentioned this in my seminar, was I always evaluate the trails in my area. And what I mean by that is I use – and again, you've got to use Google Earth to do it like you mentioned about the mule deer trails. I look at every trail that's on the topo map. I look at them in Google Earth and I zoom in everywhere those trails cross meadows. And I, I try to determine if I can see the trail, I know it's been used. If I can't see the trail, I know that it's at least lightly used. And I just tuck that away. Those are important. You can tell from Google Earth if a trail is heavily used by horses or not. It's not that difficult. And so I evaluate trails. Next thing, I always evaluate meadows. I've got a lot of rules about meadows, you know, but one tip I'll just mention is a meadow that's of any size is within two miles of the road and particularly a meadow that has a trail running to it. I don't even look at it. I'm just – that doesn't mean there's not help there. But again, I hate to sound like a broken record. I'm playing an odds game, and the odds are – a meadow that's of significant size that's two miles from an access point that has a trail to it is going to get a lot of activity from humans. So I just stay away from them. I look at I look for string meadows, string meadows or pocket meadows or high elevation basin meadows, canyon bottom meadows, side slope, 30 degree slopes, really serious slopes with benches meadows. Those are the kind of meadows I'm looking for. 
when I do my digital scouting, canyons, creeks, and drainages. I evaluate those all. Those are very important parts. I look for north-facing canyon walls that have creeks in the bottom that have a wide space at the bottom, you know, looking at the contour levels. I I found that I'll prefer these canyon bottoms that have a little bit of width to them, not these vertical side ones. And then if you can find them that have open patches in there, you know, along the creek, it's just gold. And I'm also looking for canyons and creek drains that are in fires and in beetle kill areas because those are the areas that seem to get the vegetation back first. And they're the ones that seem to have the best thermal protection um, for the elk. So I, I look for that, you know. So, and, you know, and again, looking at the odds, fire zones, obviously, that's a hot topic right now. We've got so many fires and there's so much controversy around fires, but they certainly create some prime habitat for elk. But I'm finding that elk are getting into these fire zones like after the first year. I mean, it blows my mind. I, and sometimes I'm even wondering what they're eating. And um, But I'm finding elk all over these things. And it's just like the drainage won't burn or a ridgetop won't burn. But they're using these meadows, using these fire zones to get to those spots. You know, logging areas, are, you know, that's another spot. I, I'm really picky about logging areas. I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm less interested in logging areas because of that road access usually. And a lot of times in the historical, they were clear cut and they grow up so thick, they're hard to hunt, but they are, they are elk magnets or they can be in the right time and the right, you know, things, you know, and I talked about, we already talked about beetle kill areas and sparse timber, but again, just slopes and benches. I mean, there's just all these factors that you're looking for that, you know, you described as elk features. And if you can start marking all of these features, on your, you know, whatever program of choice, man, things start to jump out. You're like, well, look at all these points of interest right here. I've got a whole cluster over here. Well, it's because you've got a good canyon. You've got a good slope. You've got maybe you've got an edge of a fire zone. You've got some, you've got all these things adding up to increase your odds is what I'm trying to get to. You know, I'm not looking for just one good looking canyon bottom necessarily. So, I mean, there's a lot to it, and uh, maybe we can have some more discussion down the road, but those are kind of the, I just wanted to squeeze those in because those are, it's a big part of the digital scouting part of it, but, you know, there's a lot to each one of those, but um, there's just a lot of factors that you put together to increase your odds. Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you added that in. That's the last piece to the puzzle is um, looking for elk features within inside your hunt plan and, like, starting to find where there's groups of them and good canyons and things like you're not just looking for for one meadow in one spot so yeah i think that's really important i think that's the final piece of the puzzle i definitely want to have you on again mar you're just an absolute wealth of knowledge i just love the way you uh, approach e-scouting and um i i love the way you're able to describe it to guys too so uh this is this is really going to resonate with their listeners and help those guys make a good hunt plan this season um i just can't thank you enough man i really enjoyed the conversation i've got a page of notes here well i really enjoyed meeting you i know we've been in communication over the years a little bit here and there but i really enjoyed meeting you at the summit and and uh and with ryan and you know you both are you and ryan both i mean it's just you guys take everything to a next level and so maybe maybe what i my role is that somehow i can 
be the be the gap between reality and you two. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a really nice compliment. Well, yeah, uh, thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed getting to meet and know and hang out with you too. So we got to keep in touch. You got to come back on the podcast. I'm super psyched to see how you do this season, elk season. I'll be uh, following along and pulling for you. Well, so and one of these days we're gonna have to talk llamas um, as well. So. Um, that's that's a big passion of mine as well. So. Oh, we've got to get into llamas. Yeah, I had it on my list today. It's just that e-scouting was so interesting. I was so engaged in the conversation. But let, let's have you back on to talk llamas, talk about your season and things. So I'll keep in touch, and we'll talk soon. But thanks again, Mark. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Again, really fun podcast with Mark. He's got a way to, of explaining that and breaking down his process that uh, that, that makes it – Real easy for for us hunters to digest and to apply into our own hunting. So thanks again for Mark being on and sharing all that great information. Uh, I know I picked up some tidbits, and uh, I'm sure you guys did too. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors. Again, I want to thank Onyx. Uh, just absolutely changed the way that I scout and hunt. Uh, I use their program nonstop on every hunt I go on. Uh, I practically use their program every single day of the year. I'm on there looking at some area, some place, somewhere. So uh, I'm absolutely in love with their program and in love with the company. And thanks to those guys for all their support on X. Uh, also want to thank Zamberlin Boots. Um, they just, uh, they're just they making some awesome pairs of boots. Super lightweight, um, burly. They're going to hold up. Uh, the perfect amount of stiffness, Vibram treads. Um, so this year, uh, again, I'm using their low-cut boot, which I'm really excited about. Where did I put my notes here? Um, it's a, a 320 Trail Light Evo GTX. Uh, just a, a great piece of great a boot. God, super lightweight, waterproof. Um, yeah, single leather design. Um, it, these things are just going to trek all over the mountains for me and, and hold up to these Western hunts. Uh, so I'm really excited about those. I'm also excited about my tennis shoes. <laughs> you guys know how I love shoes. They've got the 103 Light Hiker RRs. Uh, I'm going to be using those this season as well. So, um, yeah. With that, um, yeah, just get my stuff packed here and get out. Uh, you know, always a lot going on when you're trying to get out for a hunt. So I'm trying to get these podcasts done and out to you guys. So we got some um, good content while I'm gone. I uh, got my articles turned in yesterday. Um, my girls um, and my wife and my two daughters um, are going to take care of my dog. I think I mentioned it, but God, my dog is just not feeling right. I thought he hurt his back or something and I couldn't figure it out. Um, but I haven't been running with him for two weeks. And I mean, that guy is an animal. He's an absolute athlete. Like I can't wear out that dog. And like all of a sudden he's just worn out and I can't take him on runs. And it's took me forever to kind of figure it out, but he's kind of got a growth, like maybe, um, one of those spiral seeds that worked up into him and got infected, but some sort of infection. So, uh, anyways, not, not to bum out the podcast, but he's got a little surgery today. So the girls are going to look after him. It's just on the forefront of my mind. He's, um, he's part of the family and, and, you know, kind of my, my best running partner. I have so much fun running the mountains with him. So I've sure been missing him here these last couple weeks and we're just trying to take good care of him and get him healed up. Um, so I saw, uh, surgery went good today, got that thing all removed. And so the girls will be taking care of him. 
I'm sure he'll have a cone of, of shame on so he doesn't open up his wound or whatever. But, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to getting my dog back and getting his excitement back and enthusiasm and um, ready to get my running partner back. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pulling for my dog. Hopefully everything turns out all right here. Uh, but, yeah, getting really excited. I'm going to take off and do some hunting here. The girls will take care of him. Uh, really pumped. I'm um, getting together with a good group of guys. Going to go chase uh, Mouflon and Axis in Hawaii. Uh, it's just so fun. I've got hooked on hunting these Axis over the last couple years. It'll kind of be the tail end of the rut, but I'm sure I'll see some good bucks and have some chances to make some stocks and, and hopefully uh, earn an opportunity to loose an arrow. And uh, really got hooked on these Mouflon a couple years ago. They live in this super steep, like almost jungle environment. Um, and, and some open country too. There's some open, like almost desert dry country up in there that these Rams like as well. Uh, really rocky and rough. Um, they're super switched on. Uh, their eyesight is just second to none. Like I, I thought, uh, antelope do have good eyesight. They have some of the best eyesight. I think these move on have better. Um, they're just a small little sheep. It's going to be a super challenge, but I've got multiple days and, uh, we're going to go chase them around. So hopefully I can put narrow in one or, um, one of my buddies can put narrow in one. So I'm um, just super excited. It's going to be a great time, all packed up, ready to go. So this will kind of start off my season. So, that's what I got going on. So I got my gear packed. I leave here in two days. I got another work day tomorrow. Um, today I'm going to try to run out, uh, shoot some steep angles, get my run in, um, get in the sauna, make sure I'm getting my heat work for Hawaii. It's going to be hot. I have never used so much water in my entire life as when I'm on Hawaii. Usually 32 ounces will last me anywhere in the Western Mountains. And I know I don't need that much water. That's 32 ounces isn't that much. But 32 will get me through a day anywhere I kept doubling my water in Hawaii so that I brought 32 the first day and ran out or ran short. And so the next day I brought 64. I thought I'll be, I'll have plenty. Well, then I ran out at 64. Then the next day I brought 128 and, um, I was still adding water. I think I still added a water bottle after that. I was starting to carry like 140 ounces with me for a day of hunting. It's just crazy. The, uh, humidity there and then the heat, it just takes it out of you. But, uh, really looking forward to it, getting together with my friends and then doing some, doing some good bow hunting. So I'll try to capture everything, uh, try to put together an, uh, Instagram story for you guys so you can join in the hunt. And, uh, yeah, we'll just keep getting out this good content. I'm going to try to record some podcasts while I'm there. Um, my buddies are just great hunters, uh, great bow hunters. And, uh, we got a couple other guys joining the group, so should be able to put together some good podcasts. So, um, that's the last thing I have to pack up here is all my podcast gear, my recording equipment. I might have to get an extra bag to bring it. I mean, it's not that much stuff, but, um, it's, it's just, um, I just got to bring it. You just have the chance to get a good recording. You know, you sit down in the evening and uh, we might have some some good harvest there. So, uh, yeah, just going to bring everything, try to get some good recordings. And like I say, those guys are just a wealth of knowledge. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for all the support, guys. I appreciate it. Support of the podcast, support of the IG. Um, yeah, with that. Uh, I'm going to get my stuff done and um, get out of here and get on a plane, um, but I'll check in with you guys next week.